Welcome back to the Rural Roundup, hosted by me, Kerry Hammond. This show is produced in association with the Scottish Government. On today's episode, George and Robert are joined by Ian Boyd, Senior Environmental Consultant at SAC Consulting, to give us our quarterly environmental update. The guys discuss water quality and scarcity, carbon offsetting and insetting, and have a quick look at some current issues with invasive species. Hi Robert, how's, you, how's things with you? Yeah, very good George, how are you? Uh, I'm, I'm fine, um, things are very quiet for me, um, that's because we now have summer and yes. the combines are absolutely flying. Well, I, I, we are quiet because our, our clients are very, very busy. So uh, quite a nice chance, I suppose, when it, it is a shame for our job, though, when it, when the phone stops ringing, it means you get to do all the boring office tasks and be in be inside when the sun's shining and life is good. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's nice when you're driving back and forth to work and you see the countryside really busy. That's the best. Um, fields yeah. being cleared and, uh, and, and crops going for the following year. It, it's, it's great. And Stuart following combines and actually reasonable yields of straw behind a lot of these combines now as well, which is a surprise, really. Uh, yeah, things things seem to be not too bad. Not too mm-hmm. bad. Yep. Let's see. Hopefully it's more than just a few days that saved the summer. Hopefully we get a wee settled spell for the next few while. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Robert, it's uh, three months since we last spoke to Ian Boyd. So he's joining us today. Um, the last time Ian was with us, uh, we were talking about water scarcity. Ian, what's the latest update from SEPA? Yeah, thanks, George. Yeah, I think when we spoke last, it must have been around about June time, I think. Um, and yeah, if you think back to June, it was beautiful. It was really hot. It was really sunny. It was long, dry, prolonged periods. Since then, it seemed to get very wet and not very summer-like for a, for a while, at least where I'm living anyway. Um, and then recently it's kind of improved again, it's got a bit drier. So just kind of the, the key points to, to be aware of is that SEPA does regularly produce these water scarcity reports on the SEPA website, which you can go and look at. Um, and it will give you the latest updates on, on how the situation is looking um, in your area. area. The latest one is out just now. It does say that parts of Aberdeenshire and the Firth of Tay remain at alert for water scarcity. Um, areas like the Conan, Nairn and Murray have recovered from alert to an early warning and Orkney remains at an early warning. Um, there's a possibility that things might worsen in parts of the northeast um, without above average rainfall in September and it looks like well, the forecast I'm seeing at the moment it looks like there's perhaps a, a bit of a lack of rainfall on the horizon um, as we enjoy this nice late summer weather. Well I'm obviously based in the northeast and we had rain July and August and, you know, crops are going in the ground now, fields are being ploughed. It is remarkable actually how how dry the soil is. There's a nice bit of moisture for the seeds and that, but the soil, when you go deep down, it is quite dry. We are seeing it in the West as well, where there's even the intensive grazing dairy guys who usually struggle with gateways and, you know, m- soil moisture is probably the biggest limiting factor we've had. A really wet July, mm. a pretty wet August, and ground standing up really, really quite well. And this wee spell just now actually means, you know, that there's opportunities, positive stories farming wise, 
looking forward to the next few weeks. A good September makes the makes the rest of the autumn doable. Yeah, but I suppose it means that people can just keep livestock out just that wee bit of longer and and preserves the ground for for next year for the grass next year. Yeah, and we always kind of almost joke about water scarcity in the southwest because it's never going to be an issue. But it was so close um, to I mean, irrigators were within a couple of days of being stopped in South Ayrshire and we were very very scarce of water and it's it's remarkable how much water we've had and how low the river still are. You know the water the soil's obviously still just topping itself up all the mm -hmm. time. So yeah, yeah. Um, interesting times. Yeah, and on the report there is if you if you're interested in it, there there is an actual page dedicated to the soil moisture deficit. And yeah, I, I was kinda keeping a bit of an eye on these reports um after the prolong prolonged drought we kinda had and it, it took an, an awful long time despite the heavy months of rain and stuff, it took a, a long time for these alerts to, to actually be removed in some areas and for water levels and river levels to kind of return to, to normal conditions. So yeah, it, just because, you know, you get quite a, a wet few days, it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to um, relieve the situation. It, it normally needs, you know, quite prolonged um, long periods in, in some cases. Also, there's there's been a lot of focus on water quality this year. Um, the public seem to be very aware of it. There's a lot of news stories on the go about water companies releasing sewage into water courses and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, there is quite a high awareness of the public about that. We're also in Scotland, we have over 80 designated bathing waters where water quality is monitored throughout the summer. It runs from the 15th of May to the 15th of September. So that's just about to um, come to an end. And in these water courses, they regularly sample bathing waters. Um, and at the end of the season, they calculate the water quality classification and they'll publish that on the website. So I think it's really important that, you know, farmers in these areas probably face a bit more scrutiny. Um, but it's really important just to emphasize that farmers are doing a lot to, to protect water quality, whether that's from reducing poaching around water courses, you know, maintaining at least a 10 meter buffer strip between the top of the bank when applying slurry. Um, and there's a whole bunch of information available on the Farm Advisory Service website as well and the Farming and Water Scotland website where you can find out more information about know the rules, mind the gap, um, and we'll provide links to all this and the, the bathing water quality pages in the show notes if anyone wants to go away and have a look at them. We've got an amazing open goal here you know as far as a marketing public facing story farmers certainly you know across the whole country but looking at that bathing water story in the last 10 years farmers haven't half got their act together when it comes to managing slurry changing slurry from a waste into a nutrient a real asset on a farm and when you look at what that does in terms of bathing waters climate change profitability even just what the countryside looks like in general, you know, there's a most people operating now are operating operating really tidy, high end businesses rather than mucky farms. If that makes sense, and I think it's we probably don't do enough of that. Is to say, we still have bathing water issues, but the vast majority of these are caused by industries who haven't risen to this challenge, and we really. I think, you know, big pat in the back to all involved because we really, we have changed the whole mindset of, of what we do. Yeah, and a lot of that has been driven in quite a lot of areas by uh, NVZ's 
and things like that, which has put exclusion periods on. And and that's made a big difference. Everybody knows, you know, when you don't spread slurry, when you don't spread artificial fertiliser. Um, and every, everybody's gotten used to that now. They, they can live with it. So that that's that's also played a big role in that. I think the point you made there, Robert, is really important. You know, dung and water, that's just nutrient that's been lost downstream. You, you may as well try and keep that on your land and, and get the benefit of it. And um, yeah, while there's no actual rule, you know, about keeping livestock out of water, for example, there is about keeping poaching, you know, reducing that within five meters. Um, maybe you end up fencing off water courses. Maybe you end up just providing alternative watering or things like that as well. So there's, there's loads of stuff that farmers are doing and it is making... Um, a benefit and hopefully when we, the results get published at the end of the year um, we'll, we'll see good bearing water quality across Scotland. I think as an industry now we've you know we've come so far with dealing with our own wastes and resources and, and I've got a really good story to tell there and there's certainly that emerging opportunity when it comes to other waste to land so back looking at sewage sludges and looking at digestates and all sorts of things as a sector, we've we've performed well enough. We've we've made enough progress that actually we're now become a a really good place to be putting some of these waste materials or or, or so called waste materials that are of of huge use and huge value to farm businesses. And of course, that always comes with the the kind of two two tiered benefit. It's a big cost saving, but also you know has a significant impact impact on carbon footprints. Yeah, I, I don't think we could probably do an environmental section here without mentioning something on carbon so yeah um one of the kind of i guess a question getting asked quite a lot at the moment is about offsetting and it's offsetting a bit of a dirty word and there's this new phrase or it's kind of coming more to the fore called insetting so what we're seeing is you know companies are starting to some companies anyway are starting to move away from carbon offsetting a little bit and they're kind of focusing more on carbon insetting. So we're seeing some companies, especially in the agricultural setting, starting to try to quantify what's on farm and taking steps to request kind of more regenerative agricultural practices on farms as well. So what is the difference between offsetting and insetting? Well, offsetting really is, is allows a company to kind of compensate for their hard to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by investing in a project or investing in something somewhere in the world as a way to offset their emissions. It's been getting a bit of scrutiny recently because a lot of people are saying they're carbon neutral. There's a lot of potential greenwashing. There's a lot of projects maybe being invested in which aren't actually doing that much to, to benefit climate change. So there's been a bit of criticism, rightly so, of these things. I think carbon offsetting myself, it still has a place because there are certain types of emissions that will always be hard to reduce. You should always try to reduce your own emissions first, but there will always be a part which is maybe hard to, to get rid of. So um, yeah, there's, in my view, there is still a place for carbon offsets. What you are seeing a lot more though now is the phrase carbon insetting. And insetting is where a company invests in its own kind of supply chain, its own value chain to to benefit it. So especially for farmers and, and landowners, you're seeing a lot of the big companies, people like Nestle and things like that, um, 
looking at their supply chain, looking at their value chains and starting to invest or starting to ask for more regenerative agriculture, maybe agroforestry or measures to protect the soil, such as low, lower no-till or cover crops. And through that, they're trying to build a closer relationship with their um, with their suppliers. Um, and it's always kind of encouraging them to reduce their direct emissions and have a bit more control of their own actions and make their own business, their whole supply chain more sustainable. Yeah, Ian, obviously there is a, a bit of frustration in the farming community. Um, big companies, uh, they claim to be carbon neutral, um, They whether it's planting trees or what have you. Um, and yet farmers are doing carbon audits. They've got woodlands, they've got hedges. Um, they're undertaking other practices. And as the farm, they're it's helping their overall carbon footprint, but the individual enterprises, uh, there's still emissions being produced. And yet these big corporates are putting on their websites, they're carbon neutral, um, claiming to be carbon neutral when actually their processes are just the same. Yeah, I think that's exactly where a lot of the scrutiny and criticism is coming from. I have seen airline companies, for example, claim to be carbon neutral because they're offsetting and buying credits someplace. And I think it's important to note that there is codes of practice and various governance out there to ensure that carbon credits are robust and stand up to scrutiny. Some of them are rightly being criticised, which is, is a good part of the process. But there is schemes out there to try and make sure that um, there is good value carbon credits out there for anyone that does want to offset. But I think what we're seeing, and I think it's really a positive move, is we are moving away from these misleading carbon neutrality claims, which essentially are just a PR and marketing exercise. Um, and they're not actually doing a lot, to be honest, to, to mitigate climate change. And that's kind of why you're seeing brands like Nestle move away from from this um, and focus more on on insetting um, and insetting you know it is good because I mean it's beneficial both not only to carbon but a lot of these schemes they kind of want you to promote and adopt on farm it's also going to benefit things like like biodiversity to sell as well so it's actually helping you to reduce your direct emissions and benefiting a whole bunch of other stuff hopefully at the same time. It's important I think to keep in mind if you know this is a very new emerging story you know the carbon credits have been about for a, a good while but they're not going anywhere you know the, the carbon carbon climate change isn't going to go away you know this this market's going to be here for the rest of our our careers and, and for a long a long time after anybody that's getting pressure or getting questions about offsetting and insetting it's really important to take good advice and get make sure you don't slip up because there's some big contracts, long-standing contracts out there where uh, my worry is that the farmer at last have come to a point where on the insetting story, we've got the ball at our foot. So we've got all that the rest of the su supply chain need. They need the farmer to engage in this. And because of that, they're going to have to get paid to do it. So we have to make sure that that quite often unbalanced um share of the pie when it comes to money gets redirected to if carbon's going to be the priority there needs to be more money goes from the middle of the middle of the chain down to the bottom of the chain i think you're right i think it does need to be farmer led so you're, you're doing stuff that you know 
it's going to benefit the business, it's going to still benefit farming uh, and food production. It's changing practices, but hopefully it's quite simple changes. And in most cases, it's not a complete overhaul. And it's the whole point of this is to be kind of proactive, I guess, and to look ahead at what's coming. And But I think you're right. I think it needs to be farmer-led in terms of um, what these interventions actually are on farm. You don't want people coming in dictating you have to do a certain thing on your your land which might actually cause quite quite big problems for you so i think it, there's a, a bit of a balance to be struck there with what the kind of regenerative agriculture or however you want to term it whatever these practices are that actually are going to be implemented but to me it's a really positive thing um and i think there's loads of opportunities out there for for farmers i think it's good that some of the it's some big names that you're hearing that want to be involved with us um i big big companies and uh that's that's really good but a lot of these processes it's not an overnight thing it, it's going to take a number of years uh you know it's an, an evolution really to implement these and, and produce produce end results um we've seen it before that, that that you can implement um techniques that are um much more favorable in terms you know, regenerative agricultural techniques. However, if that affects your yield, that affects your carbon footprint, ultimate carbon footprint again. So it's, it's uh, there's a balancing act here. And like I said, it's, a, it's going to be an evolution. Uh, Ian, from time to time, we have people come into the office uh, with various plants and, and sometimes they turn into the invasive species. Uh, any updates on, on invasive species? Yeah, it's pretty topical at the moment. There's a fair bit in the news. Uh, for example, this week about the Asian hornet um, and its potential threat to native pollinators. Um, there's quite a graphic video on the BBC News website, for example, of uh, a hornet eating some native wasps, I believe. Um, so yeah, it's potentially quite a big threat to, to agriculture if this species gets established. Nature Scott actually say that invasive non-native species, which covers a whole bunch of stuff, um, cost Scottish agriculture and forestry more than £246 million a year to control and manage, which is a, a really large figure. Um, and the Asian hornet is, is kind of a new one. Um, and it's they're thinking it's likely becoming established in the UK, particularly down south. Um, and there's been quite a sharp rise in, in sightings of it. What you should be aware of if you think you see one, um, they're essentially smaller than our native hornets. Um, they have orange faces, yellow tips on their legs, and a darker colored abdomen. Um, and if you do see one, uh, they do need to be reported. There is advice on the Nature Scott website, which we can give you a link to there. Um, the reason you need to uh, report them is just because you're seeing one it means there potentially is a, a hive nearby so there could be a whole bunch more of them and it needs to be controlled and um, eradicated uh, in the appropriate way if possible there's a whole bunch of native species uh, non-native species and invasive plants and animals that you have to be aware of um, they're essentially species that have been introduced by human action. So we, we travel around the world an awful lot now. We, we ship various goods and crops and various things from one part of the world to another part of the world. And as a result of that, we, we have inadvertently, um, or sometimes, you know, deliberately or with a good intention, but it's backfired, have 
accidentally introduced these various species into our um, into our environment. So there is a lot of good advice on the Farm Advisory Service website. For example, there is um, technical notes on invasive plant species uh, and that sort of thing. So um, yeah, if you check the Farm Advisory Service website and the Nature Scott websites, there's um, a lot more information on what to do if you think you have some invasives on your land. Certainly think in this area, farmers are a lot more aware of what's around about them. You know, as policies beginning to change or, or it looks as looks as though we're beginning to see what's coming on the horizon the biodiversity story is becoming more important and i think more people are paying attention to what's around about them uh, we are certainly getting a lot more inquiries about biodiversity george would that be the same at your end that's the same up with us um yeah there is a, a big interest people know that policy is changing and and yeah people are genuinely taking a, a bigger interest in what's on their land what's their habitats and and you know what's our natural capital um but there is there is funding towards that ian is that right there is yeah um there is funding available on the farm advisory service website if you want to find out about um biodiversity surveys and audits on your farm for example um i think it's it's one thing we hear quite a lot is about baselining and people kind of wish they'd baselined at the very start to find out actually what is on the land what's the state of it what's the quality you know so i think especially with a lot of these it's stuff we talked about already um getting this good baseline and good knowledge of your existing habitats your natural capital your species that sort of thing is even more important um and there is some funding and, and support available um for you to do that if you look on the farm advisory service website we can provide a link to it perfect thanks ian Yep, thanks Ian. Thanks both. Farm software can help you save time, money and meet compliance requirements. But choosing the right farm software for your needs can be confusing with so many options out there. The Farm Advisory Service are running a free one hour webinar on Wednesday the 27th of September from 7.30 till 8.30pm. This webinar will help you to choose the best financial farm software for you and how to make the most out of the package that you do choose. You'll hear from Andrew Coulter, an accountant and consultant at SAC Consulting, who'll explain the requirements of finance software for your farm business and how the right software can benefit you. We'll also be joined by Becca Henderson, a farm business analyst at SAC Consulting. Becca has experience of working with a range of farmers who use a variety of different software packages and she'll talk us through how to get the most out of the software and how digital record keeping can help you to drive your business forward. Sustainable sheep systems are those well placed to continue into future generations, though that's not as easy as it sounds. Join us in person at Viewfield Farm in New Galloway on Wednesday the 27th of September from 10 until 3.30 to hear how the Maxwell family have developed a progressive low input sheep system with a focus on functional genetics and optimising production of forage. A farm tour will be followed by lunch and an afternoon of expert speakers on important topics for sheep sustainability like grassland management, sustainable parasite control and genetics. 
Are you supplementing your sheep correctly for minerals? When's the best time to supplement with minerals and why is it essential to consider the amount and type? Dr. Annie Williams, an independent mineral advisor, will be discussing these questions and what you need to consider as we move away from summer grazing to winter grazing. Join us online on Wednesday the 4th of October at 7.30pm for a webinar that explores a summary of the best times to supplement and why it's essential to consider the amount and type of minerals that are being supplied to avoid over or under supplementation in sheep. All of the links to these events and webinars are in the show notes. Book now to secure your place. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Rural Roundup. We'll see you back here on the 27th of September for our next fortnightly episode. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.